I went from leaning back to diving. This is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Growing up a child of the 80s, Athena Giorgaklis loved cartoons. And while she knew she wanted to work in film, her career in animation came almost by chance after taking a job as an assistant at the then-fledgling Teletoon. Once she realized that animation was what she wanted to do with her life, there was no turning back. With the willingness to learn and take on new challenges, Athena rose to the role of Director of Programming at Teletoon before making another big leap and leaving behind the world of acquisitions for the world of creation. First as Head of Development at Nelvana Studios and most recently as Vice President. With a career that spans many aspects of project creation, from development to delivery, Athena has seen and experienced it all. From early morning pitch meetings gone wrong to delivering projects with lasting impact. In our conversation, Athena shares insights into the ups and downs of content creation, management in a post-pandemic world, the importance of believing in yourself and your work, and she provides some invaluable tips and advice for content creators selling their work. Here's our conversation with Athena Giorgaklis. So I wanted to start by asking you about, you know, your love for animation. How did that start? I stumbled upon it, to be quite honest. I mean, aside from having been a huge fan as a kid and watching, I grew up in the 80s. So I watched a lot of Saturday morning cartoons. It was really the go-to for kids, right? That's what we had and what was available to us. And also afternoons, like after school, I remember Pink Panther being something I watched a lot of. Anyway, um, but I what I studied in, in film and communications. I studied in live action, to be honest. I thought I was going to, my career would, you know, kind of grow into that space. And then out of school, I my first job was in this, as an assistant to uh, the director of original content for Teletoon um, back then, Madeline Levesque. And I really just, you know, started to take on whatever she needed, right? And slowly learned about the storytelling in animation, learned about the craft and 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 the creativity and the art of animation at, through work, not through study. And it was, uh, that was really where I, I kind of built my career. And once I understood that no matter the genre, right, whether it's grown-ups or kids, live action or animation, good characters and great stories are what's important. And I started to build that knowledge through kids programming and animation specifically, and it completely changed my outlook. And I was so fortunate uh, to be at a point early enough in my career, right, to make a, a shift and to be, you know, really under the guidance of someone like Madeline, who was very generous with her time and also very busy. So I just kept grabbing all the things that were falling off her desk that she couldn't get to and and, and learned on the job. It was very, it was great. It really does take a little bit of just taking a leap and taking a chance because, I mean, if you hadn't ended up with that first position in animation, you may not be where you are today. You know, when you're in your early 20s and you're going to interviews, I mean, I had interviewed at all kinds of places. I could have been in the documentary. I mean, it was I, there were so many opportunities that were slowly opening up. But this one seemed to be such an interesting one. And I'm so glad that I did that. But I think the lesson... Um, and then, you know, you, you say I, I was very lucky to find an, an opportunity and I took it and it was outside my field, but I gave it a chance. And then I followed my gut and I really fall, tried to make sure I was doing something that I enjoyed doing because <laughs> I knew I would have to work for the rest of my life. So um, let's let's make sure we enjoy what we do. And that was really part of my decision making process, even at that young age, to the heads of my dad, who never understood what I did. <laughs> 
the reality with, you know, creative fields is that sometimes it's a bit of a leap of faith because you just don't even know if there's ever going to be a job. Like, how did your family feel when you even made the decision that originally to go to film school? My parents immigrated here in the 60s and they worked so hard just to be able to give us a stable home and a a future. And um, my sister and I were so grateful to them. Work for them was work was like, like it was survival. You made as much money as you could to make sure you had food on the table, right? And then, and and a home and a future. So uh, there was really only one career my dad thought I should have pursued and that's to become a dentist. That's it. That was the only thing he said. He said, become a dentist. He was pretty disappointed in both my sister and I that neither of us followed that, uh, his career advice. And then when I when I made the switch from uh, pure and applied sciences, because I thought I was going to be an engineer, I thought that's what I wanted to be until I really realized that really wasn't what I wanted to be. And then I switched over to the arts program. <laughs> well... That didn't go over well. And uh, and then he just, you know, nodded and disappointment and uh, let me do my thing. And it's only when I when I was able, I worked with Decode back in the day on Angela Anaconda. That was my first credit, right? It's the first time my name was going to be on screen. And I literally in front of the TV, when it was on Teletoon, we all got around and he said, and once he saw my name up on the credit, he's like, okay. That's great. I na- There's our name. It's there. I think I under. He still didn't understand what I did, but at least the recognition made him feel a little bit better about it. But I don't blame him. And I know people who've come from, you know, similar backgrounds as I have. Parents. Our parents were really just focused on us doing what we could to have a stable future. Right. That's that was the, that was their goal. That first position is as an assistant you know, was really, uh, you said you, you know, you kind of grabbed onto everything that fell off the desk and you tried to learn as much as you can. What was one thing that you learned in that first job that still helps you through your day-to-day? There was an understanding in that job. Our department was really the gatekeeper for new content for a brand new animation network, Teletoon. And so there was um, a real need for original Canadian content. And so we received all these ideas from creators and producers who were, were looking for funding, were looking for a home. And so there was a fundamental understanding that the content that came through that door, we needed to treat with the utmost respect, right? For the creators who were bringing it in and the, the producers who were bringing it in. There was a clear sense of appreciation and that we could get to see something at that very early stage. And um, it was important for um, my boss at the time. And then I learned to do the same as I moved on in my career to be grateful for the opportunity to read these ideas first or to, to, to have these first pitches through the door and to really take as much care as we needed to to review them and respond to people with that same sense of respect. And I think that that, that I've kind of kept through my entire career because I was a buyer for many years before I came over to the creative side. And I appreciate that now when I'm on the creative side and knocking on the door of buyers when that same care is being given to me and my teams, I understand now how important that is. So you started your career at Teletoon and that's kind of where you decided that, okay, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your years there and kind of moving through the ranks? Because when you left, you were a director of content, which is, you know, a pretty large role. Yeah, yeah. Um, It is. It's rare now to have a position that you kind of grew into the same company from the bottom up, but that's really what it was. So I was fortunate enough to work with multiple studios across Canada, right? Because every time we would commission a show, I would then 
start working with a new group of creative people that, you know, were part of a studio. So I worked with Atomic Cartoons on Atomic Betty, which was another one of my firsts and such a great show to work on back in the day. And I understood their pipeline and I learned their creative process and was able to really understand how the strength of a show and where it starts and where it ends. And and it really, for any one of the studios that I worked with, whether it was Mercury or Studio B before it became DHX or Decode and all this, at the core, at the very beginning, great characters, great story, scripts are everything without a great script, without a solid script, right? Not every script is a great script, but without a solid script, doesn't matter how many wonderful things you do beyond that. Um, it, the, an episode won't have the same foundation, the same opportunity. Um, so it was really important that we worked through all the kinks at the very beginning and then when I went into any one of the shows for each different uh, company and studio, I was able to understand and learn from their process, which is again, such a privilege. It's not, and I understand now after being at Nelvana for nine years, that when you're in one studio, it's kind of tunnel vision. You do what you do and you do it the way you think you're doing it best. Because I was in an opportunity to work with all these different studios, I got to peek behind the curtain of each one of them. So that was really cool. Talk a little bit about the transition from Teletoon to Nelvana. That was hard because um, I think the year I started, I was invited to a conference and somebody asked me that same question. And I said, I went from leaning back to diving off a cliff, you know, as a buyer and anyone who's you know, understands that by we hold buyer holds the purse strings and and provides advice and chooses the content that they believe is best for their network. You are sought after and taken care of, and everybody wants to speak to you and all the things. And then I went over to Nelvana, head of development, because I really wanted to have agency over the ideas, right? I really wanted to roll up my sleeves and get in there and whether I made the right idea or the wrong idea, or I gave the right kind of guidance to my team or the wrong guidance, it was mine to own, right? And I needed to do that, but boy, scary on the other side because you, you know, everybody knows this who creates content and is out there pitching their ideas and trying to, to get someone's attention, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of uh, hustling to get there, but that creative process is worth all of it. You know, it was it was leaving a really cushy position to dive into one that's um, that's fun and exciting, but a little bit scary and stressful. Well, I don't doubt it, and I mean, it's such a difference going from you know one side of the equation to the other because now you're totally on the other side trying to pitch those ideas to you, your, to yourself, like a few years back. Oh, absolutely. You know, I expect the same kind of respect I give content creators, but it's not always the case. Um, but also I think my kids, my, my kid, my daughter, my son was too young, would ask me if I, did you make that mommy? Did you make that when I was a, you know, when I was the buyer? And I'm like, well, I kind of helped make it, but I didn't make it, but I wanted to make it like, that's what I wanted to do next. And it took me a while to get there because, you know, I really was, I was so happy and fulfilled on the, on the Teletoon side for a long time. And then when Chorus bought Teletoon and I worked with other colleagues like Jamie Picars, or, you know, we, we like Jocelyn Hamilton, who was um, such a powerhouse uh, at the time. She still is, but she moved on. Um, uh, we, uh, it, was, it was a really great opportunity for me to continue to understand what it is to run a network and to make decisions about content. But for my own personal growth, I needed to, I needed to make or break some of those ideas myself. And that's, that's why I made the leap. Did you ever second guess the move? Did you ever think, oh no, what have I done? Do I have a backup if this does not work out? Yes. Yes. I started in September and I went to MIPCOM in October. And the first day of MIPCOM, I said, that's it. 
I'm quitting. I can't take this anymore. This is too hard. You have to put yourself out there. You have to learn. Like I had to learn to put myself out there. When Scott Dyer was the president of Nelvana, when I started, he hired me. He's great. He hired me at faith in me. And he kept telling me like, you got like, now you're out there. You're going to be selling those shows. I'm not selling shows. I didn't understand that there was a difference between I'm pitching a show and I'm selling a show. So it took me a couple months to get my head straight about that because it's this, it's ultimately the same thing. But I went into MIPCOM thinking, I'm going to pitch these ideas and people are going to listen because, hey, I was their colleague three months ago and now I'm on the other side of the table, but they know me, these buyers, like we have a relationship. It wasn't that easy. <laughs> it was hard, <laughs> but uh yeah, I stuck through it. I am a bit of a, an imposter syndrome sometime. I, I, I do think about whether or not I made the right choices even eight or nine years later. But ultimately, um, I really love what I do. And that keeps me there. And I haven't blown anything up. So I think I'm okay. But yeah, about a month and a half in, I, I was ready to go home. You mentioned imposter syndrome, and that's something that comes up a lot in conversations. And I find it comes up a lot more with women than it does with men. And I haven't quite figured out as to why. But how do you kind of like overcome? And maybe you don't, but how do you work through that that mental block of, you know, having that feeling that maybe you just don't belong? I actually have to convince myself with experience that I do belong, right? And it took like it took me a while at every stage, a new position, if a, a new promotion. And as I understood what it is that I could contribute and I trusted myself in that contribution and I didn't try to censor myself. I just was, it takes time. It took time for me in every position to do that. It's my own insecurities. I think you're right. We, we see it in women more than we do in men, which is, you know, why um, I think we spend so much time, those of us who are raising daughters to make sure that they're really strong and out, you know, and speak for, for themselves and believe that they can be whatever they want to be. And I, I just think from, because of the way I grew up and the experiences around me, it took me a while, but that imposter syndrome still creeps up sometimes, even today, but I, I do a good job of hushing it now because, Hey, it's been, I've been doing this for a while, but it takes, it's just personally, it's, it's like needing to know what it is I'm doing 150% before I confess that I'm doing it right. And um, and that's not necessarily how, how everyone thinks. Sometimes people just fake it till they make it and they're totally okay. Yeah, right, right. Your role has shifted uh, quite a bit over the course of your career at Nelvana. Like you started as head of development and now you're vice president. So that's exciting. How, how has um, that title actually changed the way that you work or the work that you do? Right. Um, it's actually quite different because I went from head of development again, as you said, that, you know, and I looked after one part of our business, a very important part, of course, because it's the foundation of all the ideas that we are bringing up and pitching and then selling and bringing back to the studio for the studio to um, animate. And so, you know, my job started at the very beginning of, a, of an idea and then ended with that sale, right? But now it continues all the way through to delivery of a show, right? So if you can imagine, you know, it was somebody else's problem <laughs> to worry about what show's coming, what's coming down the pipe. Like now it's, it's my bro. Like it's, that is what I need to worry about along with my boss, of course, and a team of people. I don't do that alone, but I am involved in that now, which is, again, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, even there's a new layer of stress there, but to be able to look at now my role across development into production, I think is really interesting because first I'm able to bridge development and production at a much earlier stage because what tends to happen with development departments, and even though I struggled to not let that happen, it was happening at Nelvana as well. For a long time in developing a show, we package it up, we sell it, and then we bring it to the studio, and then a whole new team of people take it over. And the, that connection happens after the sale. Whereas now my goal is to make sure that there's an, a connection between those two teams, even before we're out selling a show. 
because the earlier everyone understands what the show is, the easier it's going to be to onboard it into the studio. It's a risk because not every show we pitch makes it to production or to green light, but it's still worth the effort. And then the other thing that's interesting is that I can be a part of the conversations of what we're doing and how we're doing. How do we transform or how do we adapt a pipeline for a specific show? Uh, versus then adapting a show for the pipeline. And that's, um, that's, that is an incredibly exciting conversation right now. And that seems to me like something that really is tailored to you because of your experience, because you've had this experience both on the buying side and on the creative side, and now on this sort of more technical follow through delivery side. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is actually, you're, you're so right. It does help because of all of those disciplines in between. I mean, you know, what I also came to realize is I, I don't need to have had the to have done every single thing in that pipeline to understand how I can be a part of it or support it or improve it or, you know, work with the teams to make it work for a specific goal, creative goal. And that's really allowing me to take a kind of bird's eye view and work with all the right people on that team to help us tailor and shift things. What you know, we're we've been so lucky at Nelvana to work for many years on projects along the way. And so all of that knowledge can come into the next one, right? That's what we should be doing. And that's what I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can I can facilitate. Well, I'm talking a little bit about Nelvana and the process of, you know, going from uh, the creative to development to delivery. The reality is that the pandemic really changed things for everyone. How has it affected the way that, you know, you guys work at the studio? Right. I can't tell you how quickly all of us, right, not just Nelvana, but the industry pivoted to still be productive. I never, ever would have expected that to have happened that quickly. And it's remained that way. So there was a core group of people that in two weeks, you know, put, brought all of those Centiques, all of that equipment over to the creative teams in their spaces, in their home offices. And that's where, that's how we now operate. We're completely remote safe for, you know, a few people who come in and um, they have the opportunity to come in on a regular basis, but there was never a a request or requirement to come back uh, to the studio. And so when given the option, I think the first, the first survey we did had like 85% of people said they'd rather just continue to work from home rather than come back into the studio in Toronto. And I thought that we all thought were shocked by it, but then realized you know, there is a certain uh, sense of work-life balance that comes with uh, working from home that a lot of people just never had. I think I understand that now. And, you know, production can get a little crazy and people can start, can work, you know, extra hours. It just seems like uh, it was a good fit for everybody. Now, if you would have said to me four years ago that Nelvana would be a, you know, work from like a remote, I would have never believed it because it was so counter to the corporate culture that we're a part of. Nelvana is the part of Chorus and Chorus was very corporate, is very corporate, uh, but Chorus as well as Nelvana didn't really require people to come back full time. And I think that's that's been a benefit to uh, to the team. Does that make it harder for you, though, when it comes to managing people? Because I mean, that's really a big part of your job as well, is making sure that everyone is, uh, you know, talking and the, the communication is so important. Personally, I always manage people remotely because I'm in Montreal. And so my position as the head of development was always with me in Montreal and coming to Toronto every couple of weeks or going to Toronto every couple of weeks. And now I, I go to Toronto less often because we still, you know, we're able to manage everyone remotely. I don't manage every single person. Clearly, there are people who do that on the shows and there are um, uh, supervising producers and everyone, after, you know, um, in between. Um, there, I think there is a, I'll tell you what the biggest challenge for me is right now in my new role is to rebuild the company culture that's been lost. We all worked, you know, the studio in Toronto, if you 
If you haven't been, I will invite you to come and take a look next time you're in Toronto. It was a stunning building and a really one of the most beautiful studios I had ever visited before I was working in it. Because again, I visited so many studios and they, they just, just had such a great spot, beautiful views, good company culture. Um, and that, that's been lost, unfortunately. And that's what one of my other main goals in this new role is to find a way to rebuild that so that the production teams, you know, will speak to each other on a regular basis, but it's the teams that, you know, the separate teams don't. Everybody's in a bit of a silo. That's what, you know, what's a challenge now. Uh, whether or not we're managing, you know, we're, I mean, you got to change the way you manage people and focus on you know, making sure that they're delivering and, and communicating with them on a regular basis is a completely different management style. But again, it's one I had already adopted because I wasn't in the studio all the time. So, I mean, what are some suggestions or things that you've learned from the years that you've been doing this remotely that have helped you kind of like better interact and work with colleagues and peers? You can't be a micromanager. That's for sure, because it's not, first of all, it's not a good management style, but you really have to trust people are delivering and they're doing their work. Personally, <laughs> I don't know if my team loves it, but um, you know, once the pandemic, even prior to the pandemic, we had regular meetings. They used to be over the phone. At pandemic, we, you know, we do these uh, Zoom or, or Teams meetings daily. That daily meeting was, you know, is meant to just have a check-in and see what everybody's doing, get an update. I can update them on the, all the things that I'm doing that aren't necessarily in their day-to-day, -day, but that do provide some insight on where the studio, what the studio's thinking and that kind of thing. But ultimately, yeah, for, and it's still really important for me that I have a regular connection with the people that report to me. And if it's not every day, then it's at least once a week. And it's just to check in to make sure just, you know, is everything okay? Not just work-wise, even during the pandemic, even emotionally and the, well, everything. We were going through a lot. We were all going through a lot. And uh, and I thought that was very important. But I choose to trust that the people who report to me are doing what they need to do. That's easier for me too, to be honest. What do your days look like working on both like the, the creative side and then the development side of things? What does your regular day look like for you? It's not as balanced as it used to be because now, of course, as I oversee the studio, I spend a lot of time in meetings, meetings about everything, development and production and pipeline and corporate. And so I really do spend way too much time in meetings, but that is the, I think that's also a result of the pandemic and the way that we communicate. We don't call each other anymore. We set up a meeting. I think that's the norm now. Well, I would have loved to have, you know, a good hour to a day where all I did was read or watch stuff and made notes and that I can barely get an hour to a week anymore to do that. Or if I do, it's on the weekend. And um, it is just the reality of the job. The further you know, I, I kind of get uh, oversee the, a broader piece of this business, the further I get from the creative, which is the most fun. You know, you talk about, you know, making time for that creative side of things outside of work. Do you carve out time personally to stay creative and to be in that creative space? Let me explain to you what my life is like. <laughs> I have a wonderful husband and two amazing kids who keep me very busy, right? So, uh, and they've grown up with me just kind of coming into this, you know, this, this part of the business. And I have a 16 year old daughter and a 10 year old son and they're, my life is, is busy, very busy. There's no time for creative. I'm lucky if I can pick up a book from time to time. Like there's no time unfortunately there will be time it's a phase it's a phase I know it's gonna pass I take all of it in I appreciate the time I have with them they're lovely children most of the time but I am I'm a mom that's why we stayed in Montreal we didn't move to Toronto we could have moved but we didn't uh, we're very much you know important family's important to us our 
parents and siblings and, and our kids. And so all of that, I, I love that you asked me that question. No, I have no time to be creative. I do love to watch stuff with the kids. And I'm probably like a way too enthusiastic mom about anything animated, like anything. We'll watch whatever it is. And I laugh with them and I rewind stuff so we can watch stuff again. And those are things that I can enjoy with them. And they still enjoy, although the 10-year-old still enjoys with me. The 16-year-old doesn't want to have anything to do with them when it comes to that stuff. But um, but it's, um, yeah, that's how I keep myself uh, close to the, the content is just to watch it with my kids. You mentioned something interesting, and I want to talk about watching content with your kids, but the fact that you made the conscious decision to stay in Montreal when life might have been easier if you'd moved to somewhere where, you know, it's more central like Toronto. Was it hard to make that decision? Yes, it was. Absolutely. I think it just was um, the opportunities were could have been, of course, my career could have been different or could have been what it is. I, it, it's just the opportunities were just so much more fruitful, but it was easier for me to say I will stay than it would have been to go. I think it would have uprooting not only our lives, like even if we did it when before we had the kids, when the kids were young, again, I'm a child of immigrant parents and I have responsibility to them. I really do. Anyone who knows who's kind of lived through this understands there's a responsibility to them, especially when they worked so hard and they left such terrible situations uh, to give us a better life. I think it would have been heartbreaking if when it came time for me to help them, I was like, see ya, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and I couldn't do that. Neither could my husband. So we stuck to our guns. There is a way for you to have a, a viable career where you want to live. You know, I think that there are concessions that we'd have to make, of course. I have to travel a lot, which is not, you know, and um, and that's not always easy, especially with a family. But it is, it was worth it for me. I wouldn't have changed that. You mentioned watching content with your kids, which I think is fantastic because not only is that an opportunity for you to connect with them and share with them the work that you do, but I assume that also kind of gives you a bit of insight to, you know, what kids are into and what's happening in the industry from a slightly different perspective, from a, a parent's perspective. How, how does that help you with the work? Even maybe, you know, not, you might not realize it, but it is affecting how you look at things. Yeah, I, I observe a lot of how kids react to things. My kids, other kids that are in our uh, our orbit, and I take it in. I understand. I like. I love. It's very important for all of us who create content and that we understand our audience quite well, right? And I, but I don't assume that our audience is really, you know, my kids' perspective because my kids have grown up privileged enough to understand what I do from, you know, from the very beginning of an idea to, so they, you know, I, I, I'm careful. And I would say I avoid to give an opinion based on what I think my kid will want to watch, right? Because they have a different perspective from every other kid out there just because of their proximity to the process. But that being said, when my kid laughs at a joke um, that sometimes wouldn't have been allowed if it was on another broadcaster versus if they're watching it on YouTube or Netflix. I wonder, right? Do we make the right choices sometimes to censor things that we believe are from an S standard, standard and practices perspective uh, from a network are, um, is that appropriate? Are we limiting our opportunities to tell the kinds of jokes our kids want to hear? Or And those are questions I ask myself, but always, you know, within the right context. Um, having a an understanding of what they're doing with their lives, them, their friends, and what they're watching, of course, it's it's a huge advantage. Uh, but even if I didn't have them in my proximity, even if I didn't have my own kids to kind of rely on that, I think that's something as creators, whoever is creating a show for kids, you got to try and find a way to understand what they watch and why they watch it, right? Why they enjoy it. So you know, if you have an eight, nine or 10 year old in your life right now, they're likely watching YouTube. Well, they're likely playing video games and watching YouTube more than they're watching anything else. And that's Netflix and television networks combined. I mean, a lot of people will have a negative opinion about YouTube. You really have to look at what they're watching and just 
try and imagine why they love it so much, right? Don't poo-poo it before you, you spend some time understanding why they like something. So those are things that are important to me is understanding the audience, but I don't depend on my own immediate environment to make that decision. We do a lot of research. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that change in, you know, how we consume media and how our kids are growing up in a culture where they're basically like, they've got access to computers and the internet from when they're born. It completely changes the way they interact with, you know, content. Now, Vanna, can you talk a little bit about how that plays into the work that you guys are creating and looking for? Again, I mean, we really, we when you hone in on an idea that you love and you make a decision as to who that demographic, who are you targeting, right? What age group, what, uh, what genre is it? Uh, what's the target age group? And then really make sure we understand that target age group today because it would have changed from two years ago and they're always evolving because to your point, they've grown up consuming content or consuming media at a much younger age. So although cognitively they're the same, they're not, kids don't immediately change physically and cognitively, but their understanding of of media changes, like storytelling, right? If you watch something at an earlier age, by the time you're five and six, uh, they're a little more sophisticated in terms of the storytelling that they're open to um, receiving. So it's that media consumption, of course, changes them. So we need to understand, like, what is a six-year-old today? What did they grow up on, right? What have they been watching? And it's likely Coco Melon and and all the other, you know, um, great kind of YouTube digital first shows that have, again, like transformed the way that we we make content and we deliver content. So that's something that we need to do. So when we start, again, really important, we understand who we're making it for, but then we also understand where we think it'll live. So if it's a show that we think is going to live on Nickelodeon or would be a great fit on Nickelodeon, then we make sure that we understand Nickelodeon's needs and, you know, and try to pitch them a show that we think they're going to like. Although our our kid audience is the first thing that we consider and that we research, we also research where we think we're going to, and where the show's going to end up, where we think the show's going to end up. doesn't always end up. And I mean, Nelvana has such an extensive catalog of you know, material going back decades. What happens to that material now? Because like you say, you know, tastes are changing. Material that was maybe appropriate five, 10 years ago might not be consumed in the same way now. So what happens to all that IP? Some of that IP is still out there, right? We're still selling shows that we produced 10 or 15 years ago, and there's still buyers out there and animation's so great because it's timeless. There's another element to that, though. You mentioned, you know, whether or not it's appropriate. It's also the technology changed. So if shows that we produced in four by three today look a little strange, right? On 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 all of these 16 by 9 TVs. So we, you know, there's question of whether or not we up-res and we adapt some of that content so that we can continue to get it in front of audiences. But at some point, it just doesn't look as good as the new stuff that's coming out, right? So a lot of that catalog is either still out there and still on the air. We distribute it on YouTube, on our own YouTube channels and make sure that we're still seeing you know, an opportunity for kids to continue to enjoy, you know, the early Franklin episodes or Babar or because otherwise, I mean, really, how else are they going to find those shows? And I think YouTube becomes a good strategy for that. And then the ones that really have, you know, the ones that had a huge impact with audiences, Franklin being one of them, those are IPs that we we still want to bring back. We want to find a way to reboot them or renew them for for a new audience, because I'm sure they'll love them. They just, you know, it's hard to tell a kid to watch something that doesn't look as sharp as what they're watching now. (laughs) What about the balance of, you know, the fact that you have some of this IP to go uh, to explore and refresh for a new audience? Can you talk a little bit about finding the balance of 
the IP that you already have and new content that you're developing. How do you find that new content and what's sort of the balance between the two things? The majority of it is new content. We we do lean on the uh, brands that we already have. And once in a while, when we think it's the right time, we'll invest some time and money developing a new version of them and bringing them out to buyers. But it, the majority of what we do is either new IP or partner IP. So, you know, working with the team internally. So there's creative people across the studio who've open consistently open the door to have them pitch us ideas and and then we'll option some of those ideas and develop them in-house. We have a publishing company. Our sister company, Kids Can Press, is a great resource for us. And we've adapted quite a few pieces of IP from them, including The Most Magnificent Thing and Franklin and so, so many others and continue to do that. So that's a great resource. External creators, external producers who have a really interesting show, a great take on something. They need a studio. They'll come to us. We have multiple titles that have come that way. And then, you know, partner IPs like a Mattel, for example, when when we were able to work on Thomas with them and now another show, which I'm not sure I can talk about because I'm not sure we've actually released it. So I won't talk about it yet. But um, and then Nickelodeon, we were we've you know had a great relationship with them, co-developing and then producing uh, some Nickelodeon shows. Those are you know those are different areas, right, of sourcing content, uh, and each of them really important. But the existing IP, it's great to look back and and lean on when we think it's time. But it's not the majority of what we do. You've worked on so many shows over the course of your career. Is there one that stands out? Because I mean, I know they're all kind of like your children and it's hard to pick a favorite, but there is, is there one that stands out for you for whatever reason that might be? So I'm so still so proud of a show that I had worked on when I was on the TV side uh, with Fresh Animation. I think it was an it was Nelvana show originally um, because it was created at Nelvana and then that team went off and and, um, created their own studio. But I was there when 16 was developed. I was there when 16 was pitched uh, in the room. And it was a great pitch. I'll never forget it. And it, it then became a great show. And to be part of that, I thought was really special because it was so different. It introduced a genre to animation that that we had never uh, seen before. And, um, and that was, uh, that was really one of the most rewarding um, shows that I, I was able to be a part of. You know, when I soon after I started at Nelvana, we decided to make a short film based on a book that I loved, a Kids Can't Press book, uh, The Most Magnificent Thing. And that too became, it still is really one of my, the most favorite things I've, I've done. And so, so proud of that, uh, of that, of that short film. And then everything in between, you know, the hardest part of development is having to let go of the projects that don't find a home. And like 90% of them don't find a home, right? It's really hard to get that all, put all that energy into selling a show to a buyer outside of Canada and making sure that we have all the funding because they're so expensive to make and all the work that goes into getting to green light it it works from time to time, but it's it's a tough slog. It's hard. So every show that I've had to let go of has, has like it's still there in my heart. <laughs> Have any of them ever come back? Because perhaps sometimes it's just not the right time or you know the right person. Have you had a project that you know at some point you let go and then it's it's managed to make its way back? Yeah, so you like there's timing, right? Timing for everything. We developed a couple of six to eleven comedies that, um, when we were ready to go out and pitch them, we were like they were we were hearing that buyers weren't really looking for that, and so we kind of parked them for a while. And now that six to eleven seems to be opening up again, it's like here where they are. Oh, there's the song and dance because we love them and we believe in them and we've been you know we've invested in them. I mean, it takes all this time and energy and money and you get there and you you have a great pitch and a, and a super creative team 
and you're just like hoping you can get there and the timing sometimes well a lot of time is so important so yes we bring them back out uh, when when the timing is right and give them another go and sometimes that works so that all that work does not necessarily have to go to waste Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily. Don't throw anything away. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say sometimes you just have to be really honest with yourself. Like if you're getting feedback that says it's really not, it's because the the ones that we're still holding on to, the feedback wasn't that it wasn't good or funny, or it was that it wasn't the right thing for them at that time. But, you know, sometimes the feedback is so critically important to the pitch itself, the creative that you have to decide if you're going to put it aside. You have to be honest with yourself. Well, uh, that's an interesting point. Can we talk a little bit more about that, you know, and, and getting feedback and taking feedback and how do you incorporate that into your pitch? Because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as someone that's worked, you know, in the industry for so long on all aspects of, you know, making, making TV and film, you have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and, you know, taking feedback is so important, but it can also be really hard. How do you know if that feedback is actually right for you? Because perhaps they just don't get it or you, maybe you're right. Like, how do you even navigate that? That's a tough one. Uh, That's hard. It is hard. Taking criticism is a hard, it was hard for me. That's why I almost quit that day. At, at, uh, at because you take it, you, you, you smile, you make notes, you thank them, and then you come back to it and you kind of sometimes have to walk away from it and then come back to it the next day. Because I've been a buyer, I will say, you also have to remember that buyers don't like to say no. They really don't like to say no. And sometimes some buyers are very good at saying no and being very clear as to why they're saying no. And others might just be like trying to sugarcoat it, right? Trying to put it in a a nicer package. And they'll give a note that maybe doesn't matter to, to like, to that. It wouldn't actually, if you made that change, it may never, they may never take it. So you almost want them to be brutally honest so that you know you can move on. So I would say take notes with a grain of salt. Because, you know, if I'm pitching a show about bicycles and the buyer says, I want elephants, I'm not necessarily going to go and change my show to elephants over bicycles because it's not inherently the show, right? If they give you a sense of some direction that's still a part of what the show is and you want to address that, then do it. It's just, I wouldn't do that every single time because you need to have conviction in the ideas that you've made. There are pivots that can happen, but you shouldn't have to overhaul something that you've you've created. If a buyer really likes the idea and wants to see changes, they'll give you a development deal and they'll work with you on those changes or they'll ask you please do this and come back. So keep that in mind because they are as buyers. I was, I, I was the worst part of my job was having to say no to people. And I had to say no to people nine times out of 10, right? So take some of that feedback with, with a grain of salt sometimes. If you had, and I mean, that's amazing advice. If you had another piece of advice to give creatives on how to prepare for a pitch, what would you say is the most important thing that they should be doing? It's a creative conversation. So you don't need a song and dance, right? You don't need to be totally on and like performing, right? For for a pitch, but you do need to know your pitch and your story that you're telling. So don't read if you are like it's easy in a Zoom video, right? Like you've got your your script and your, you, but don't let them know that you're reading. So you have to rehearse, 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 rehearse. We do it now. We do it with our some of the creatives and like I do it with people who've been pitching shows for 25 years. And then we do the rehearsals like five times and everybody wants to shoot themselves because they're doing it again. But we get better at it and we we're like more precise about it. Try and keep it short. If you've got a half an hour meeting, don't let your pitch exceed 15 to 20 minutes. 
20 minutes maximum because you want 10 minutes of chatting, right? When you start, introduce yourself, who you are. I mean, you can either let them introduce themselves. Don't jump into a pitch right away. I get it. I get nervous too when I pitch. Even now, I pitch so many shows. I get nervous and you just want to get it over with. But you got to try and relax a little bit. At the end of the day, these buyers love the, what they do because they get to hear stories from creators directly. So just know that you've got the floor and try to tell you know the story without making it seem like you're reading the whole thing, right? Great visuals are fun if you have them. Never show something that you don't like. Don't ever, don't do it because if you don't like it, that's all you show somebody an image. That's what they're going to remember. So if you don't have something you believe in and you think is the right art direction, don't even show it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You better not doing anything. Just talk about the story and characters, 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 characters. So important. So, you know, most of these pitches are, are zooms now. They're not face to face. So um, I think that that's an asset. Just think about that and try to try to keep it like tight. Um, sorry, I'm giving more than one of advice. Uh, I think that's it for now. But I'd say try not to be too nervous because they are they're really nice people. Most of them are nice. And if somebody's being a jerk and they turn their camera off or you see them on their phone, just ignore it. It is what it is. It still happens to me. That's fine. There'll be another one tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Like, and then remember, they're people. They have bad days. They have good days. They have whatever. Like, I've been at, at conferences where I have a pitch meeting at eight o'clock in the morning, and that poor person had been out partying way too late the night before. Good for them. So they come to the pitch, and they're like, not really that open to a pitch. I get it. I've been there. You just kind of let you know. You let it go, roll off your back. You'll pitch them again another time. <laughs> With all of the work that Nelvana does, is there a show that's upcoming or something that's out now that, you know, you're even more excited about than everything else? I am so excited. Uh, we're in production on the Most Magnificent Thing series, Millie Magnificent, that has been greenlit. It's in production. We we took it out and pitched it before we got the green light and it was so well received. It's a beautiful show. It comes from you know, Ashley Spire's mind. She wrote the book, authored the book and created this character to be a part of the growth of that character into a series, to take a picture book into a short film and then into a series um, is so incredibly difficult. And, but it, imagine how much it was in Ashley Spire's book foundationally that we were able to do all of this, right? And having a, a new take on a CG show for us, allowing us to build and to, I said this earlier, to adapt our pipeline for this show and working with, um, you know, all the right people to make that happen. Um, I, that is incredibly exciting. I can't wait for everyone to see it. And that was our conversation with Athena Giordakles, Vice President of Nelvana. You can find out more about Nelvana and all of their upcoming projects on their website at nelvana.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.